You're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, What are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him, and he said, Yes, what they are building. If a fox goes up on it, he will break down their stone wall. Hear, O our God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads, and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt, and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. In Judah, it was said, the strength of those who bear the burdens is failing. There is too much rubble. By ourselves, we will not be able to rebuild the wall. And our enemies said... They will not know or see till we come among them and kill them and stop the work. At that time, the Jews who lived near them came from all directions and said to us ten times, You must return to us. So in the lowest parts of the space behind the wall, in open places, I stationed the people by their clans with their swords, their spears, and their bows. And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. Well, good morning again, everybody. Hey, thanks so much for participating in that survey. It's going to be tremendously helpful in in gathering uh, where your heart is and what we see are the opportunities available in our city and our part of the city. Uh, So thanks so much for being here. Uh, Thanks for gathering together to worship with us uh, as well this morning. Uh, A special shout out to those tuning in online. Uh, There will be a a special family tuning in, and that is that our brother, Pastor Neil, and the Castle family are down with COVID, uh, and so they will be tuning in. Please uh, keep them in your prayers. COVID has breached the walls of the castle, 
uh, at last. Uh, and so that has uh, created an interesting dynamic, particularly over the, the next few weeks. Uh, obviously, Neil down with COVID. Uh, I'm heading away with the family over the school holidays. Pat and Carly are welcoming their little girl into the world any day now. It might be even this morning. We can pray for that. That'd be exciting. Uh, but that means that over the next three weeks, particularly, I wanted you to know that we're going to have uh, 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 three in a row guest preachers. This is exciting. The very first of those we're going to see or hear next week, and that is our very own lecturer in biblical studies in residence, Michael Theophilus. He's going to be preaching for us. And then we're going to have Pastor Coy, who's uh, a minister with City on a Hill in Melbourne's West, uh, and then also the kind of elder statesman of evangelical ministry in Melbourne, Dr. Peter Adam, uh, the week after that. Uh, and so there's a good smorgasbord available for you in terms of preaching in the next few weeks uh, as we're going to continue in Ezra, Nehemiah. Uh, but for now, you've got me. Uh, and so we're going to dive back in to Ezra, Nehemiah. Hey, that's encouraging. Thank you, that half-hearted clap. I really appreciate that. Uh, Hey, let's pray that God would be with us as we open up Nehemiah chapter 4. God Almighty, we thank you so much for your word, that it is a privilege uh, to be able to open it and to hear from you, Lord, not just the the words of of people, uh, but words breathed out by you. And so we pray now that they would be profitable to us, that you would help us understand what it is that you are saying. May you open our eyes uh, to trust in your son, Jesus the Word made flesh. And may we leave uh, this place this morning wholeheartedly clinging to Him, uh, knowing that you cling to us. And so do that through Nehemiah chapter 4 today, we pray, in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, Amen. Well, I think Luke uh, announced it last week, but in the middle of last week, I celebrated a birthday. And it was uh, a great day. And this year, on my birthday, I hit peak suburban dad level when it came to my presence because I got a pressure washer. Uh, I wanted a pressure washer. My birthday came around and I got a pressure washer. And perhaps to add to the peak suburban dad vibes, I actually brought the pressure washer myself. (laughs) And I bought the pressure washer myself at Bunnings on a Saturday after I had been coaching at Auskick and sharing a, a sausage and bread with my son. It was just peak Melbourne suburban dad vibes. Uh, and I'm excited about my pressure washer because I have a driveway and I have a car and my driveway and my car do not know what is yet about to hit it. 1810 PSI of water pressure to be exact. Uh, and as I was looking about with what pressure washer to get, I was weighing up the, the kind of what, how much power do you want? What, what a level of a PSI would I need? Because I want to clean the car. I don't want to destroy the car. Uh, and so you've got to kind of get the, the, the middle of the range type because I learned in my research that you can get kind of commercial grade pressure washers where, you know, you put your hand in front of that pressure washer, your hand is not going to be working anymore. And so you've got to be careful that you don't get one that's too powerful and the pressure too much that it, rather than cleaning, it destroys. Now, I haven't come up here just to tell you about my birthday present that I got for myself or pressure washers. There is a connection. We have been in Ezra and Nehemiah now for nine whole weeks. Uh, And when you are in a book of the Bible, or or what has now become two books of the Bible, when you're in a series like this at this length, uh, you should expect, and we have seen, a, a little bit of repetition. Some of the themes are similar to what has come before. And today, we enter into this episode that is similar to what we have seen before, 
And it's similar in the sense that it tells us and reminds us that there is going to be pressure come upon God's work in the world, that there is uh, opponents, there are enemies to God's work in the world. Some of those enemies are external, the world. Last time we saw that those, that opposition can sometimes be internal, our flesh, our sin, our compromise. Today we're going to see that there is uh, pressure again put upon God's people. But just like my pressure washer, sometimes pressure cleans and purifies. Other times pressure might just destroy and stop the work. And so we're going to see what happens here as pressure comes upon the work of God's people today. And the question from the text is, what is this pressure going to do? Is it going to purify the work of God in the world or amongst God's people here in Jerusalem? Or is it going to destroy it? And that's going to be a question for us today as well, not just for them two and a half thousand years ago. If you were here last week, uh, you'll know that we saw that the beginning of the rebuild was taking place, that, that Nehemiah had kind of inspired and, and kind of God's hand was upon him and he brought the people together and he walked around that wall, saw how devastating and how shameful it was that Jerusalem lies in ruins and then it was all hands on deck. Everybody got to work. Everybody started contributing to this rebuilding work. And we saw that that's not just true for them. That's just not a a call to them. Rather, in the New Testament, it's a call for us, for all of us who are following Jesus. All of us who are trusting in Jesus are called to get our hands dirty, to, to get into the work, to contribute to the work that God is building in the world. God is building His church in the world. And all of us are called to contribute to it. And I quoted Jesus last week when he pulled his mate Peter aside and he said, hey, I will build my church. And the thing that he goes on to say next is very important. He says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You see, last week we saw the gates of Jerusalem broken, lying on the ground, burnt. But this side of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus tells us that actually it's the gates of hell that are vulnerable. It's the gates of hell that are going to be breached and broken as God does His work in the world. Jesus is alive, and the good news of that reality goes out into the world, and we can be assured it is going to do stuff. Hearts are going to be changed, and that's probably why you're here. People are going to be stirred to seek Jesus, and that might be why you're here today, because God's building His church. God is going out into the world through people like you and me, that His love might be proclaimed and His invitation to join the family might be accepted. Now, it's a reality that in spite of us knowing the final score, that Jesus is one, still we're told in the New Testament that there is an enemy that prowls around like a roaring lion. There is opposition to the work of God in the world. As much as we can be assured that it is going to be completed, there's still someone, forces, spirits, the enemy out there trying to delay, defeat, destroy God's work in the world. So today we're going to see what it looks like to be a people who are getting on with God's mission and yet who are seemingly trying to be disrupted by God's opposition, how we might be able to push back against that, how we might be able to protect ourselves against it, how many, we might be able to live and thrive in this kind of reality. 
And so let's see uh, and open up Nehemiah chapter 4. As we do open up this chapter, we see that the work now has been going underway, uh, but God's enemies are not happy about it. There is a war of words that takes place. So let's start talking about a war of words. Let me read the first three verses of chapter 4. It says, Now when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and greatly enraged, and he jeered at the Jews. And he said, in the presence of his brothers and of the army of Samaria, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they restore it for themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish up in a day? Will they revive the stones out of the heaps of rubbish and burned ones at that? Tobiah the Ammonite was beside him and he said, yes, what are they doing? If a fox goes up on it, it will break down their stone wall. Now we met Sambalat and Tobiah last week and therefore there last week they were upset Now it's escalated a little. They are angry, greatly enraged, we're told. And so Sambalat calls his allies, his friends, around, and he starts scoffing and mocking and teasing what the Jews are doing. What are they doing? This is so weak and got no idea. This wall's going to fall down, and Tobiah kind of throws in, hey, if even a fox kind of glances or grazes against this wall, down it's going to go. So they're trying to up the pressure here. Haven't yet got to physical fighting, though the threats of that will come. They're using their words to try to tear down the work of God in building this wall. Now we used to say when I was on the playground in primary school, particularly maybe you did too, you know, sticks and stones will break my bones, but words will never hurt me. And you say that as kids, perhaps because as kids, you kind of lack that emotional intelligence to know that actually words really hurt. (laughs) Actually, words can hurt us. They might not break bones, but we all know that that words can have a very powerful impact. Now, I love uh, sports, any kind of sport that's happening in the world. I'm, I'm usually trying to kind of have an interest in it. And I saw this week that the Golden State Warriors won the NBA Finals. But I was particularly intrigued by... Uh, how they talked about winning after having won. Because I saw that in kind of every single press conference when, you know, you ask the players, like, you know, hey, what motivated you to, to, to step up and, and, and win and compete? Every single one of them had a chip on their shoulder because of words that others had spoken over them during the season. And they kind of just collated like a, a Rolodex in their mind. All the, the social media posts and the, the kind of analysts that had said bad things about them or said they weren't going to win. Or, you know, and that, they'd used that as fuel to help them go a little bit harder, run a little bit faster, try a little bit more. And there's a principle there. That is that, that words stick. And they stick in us and they can either bear fruit or they can fester. I can remember words spoken over me about me, to me, sometimes from, from decades ago. Maybe you, in, in, in the deep recesses of your memory bank, you have, you have words that people have said to you. And some of those words might be super encouraging, and they, they build you up. And upon reflection, you're like, man, that was good. You're still kind of enjoying the fruit of it. And yet other words can hang in there, and they can fester. They can feel rotten. They tear you down. Make you feel shame or guilt or condemnation. The book of Proverbs says that life and death is in the power of the tongue. Life and death is in the power of the tongue. 
the words that you say at home, the words that you say to your spouse, the words that you share amongst your family, the words between your friends, you know, they can bring life, hope, reconciliation, love, encouragement, or they might just tear the other person down in such a way that the marriage dies, in such a way that the family splits, in such a way that friendships remain strained for a long time. And God's enemies know this. And they are hoping that as a result of their words, the people, Nehemiah and his country, the Jews, that they might be so discouraged that they stop the work. And that hope that they have, Sambalat and Tobiah, is actually still the hope of God's enemies today. Because behind what they're doing, they're just joining a, a long line of the same strategy that God's enemies have used throughout all of time to try to tear at and get in to God's work to stop it and bring it down. You know, in the very beginning, much like these words, it was a, it was a mocking kind of question that started making things go south. That was when the serpent was in the garden and he starts talking to Eve. You know, did God really say that if you eat of the fruit, you'll die? He knows that you're not going to die. Words. And it led to Eve and Adam leading us all into disobedience. Then we can fast forward into the beginning of the New Testament and we see that just before Jesus started his public ministry, he was led out into the desert and there he faced the same serpent, Satan himself. And he was tempted to not go forward with the work of God that he had upon his life, but rather to take the easy way out, to be tempted. And every time Jesus had to respond, no, it is written. There was a a war of, of words at play. Later in Jesus' ministry, as he was growing in prominence, there's uh, this episode recorded in John chapter 8 where he's in an argument with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees are, are getting super, super offended. And they say, hey, Jesus, mate, you can't speak to us like this. We're, we're the children of Abraham. And Jesus says to them, no, you're the children of the devil. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. If we go right to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, we see that the same serpent, Satan, the devil, is called the accuser of God's people. That he uses words to, to accuse, to condemn, to bring down people who are trusting in Jesus that we might live out of or tap out because of our sin and our unworthiness. And so Nehemiah chapter 4 here, it, it highlights this tactic that God's enemies have always used, particularly his great enemy, the devil. This tactic to try to disrupt God's work in the world. There's a reason that false teaching is such a prominent theme in the New Testament. We don't often think about it very much. It's because there are people, there were people, and there still are people working within the movement of God to destroy and disrupt the purity of gospel power from saving, from transforming, from redeeming people out of darkness and into the kingdom of light. And it's all through words. Words. And so this pressure here, this pressure of words 
put onto the work of God in the world is something that, that we need to consider. That there is, there is a, a pressure against the move of God, against the, the work of God, against the building of His city here and the building of His church in the world. And so like Nehemiah, we need to be mindful of how to guard ourselves in this war of words. Guard ourselves against words that don't come from truth and light, but rather from darkness and lies. The kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness, as long as it exists while it remains, will always be in this war of words. And so maybe for you practically, it looks like perhaps stepping out in gospel witness and yet being mocked for your faith, just like Nehemiah is here. Maybe there's, there's arrows of theology and doctrine that's maybe half true. Maybe it's appealing in fleshly ways, but not in accordance with God's Word that gets sent into our heart and our mind. Maybe there's pressure that's put upon us through intimidation or anxiety or fear. There's words roll around in our heads that perhaps people have said that's used to bring us down. How to combat that, we need to be a people who fill our minds with God's truth. To be a people who follow our Father, not the Father of lies, but the Father of truth. To fill our minds with truth, words of power, words of hope, words of good news that define you and your standing before God once and for all. The define reality, define where we're going. And so we should be a people who, who take up the Scriptures and feast on truth, feed our hearts and our minds with truth. We should be a people who make the most influential circles in our life, circles of believers who tell us the truth, who remind us of the truth, who remind us of God's Word. And we should recognize for ourselves that, that out of our mouth, our heart speaks. Our heart, what's in our heart comes up out of our mouth. And so we want to be a people who speak truth, who speak words of encouragement, who, who build up, who get alongside people, to call them out of lies and into truth. And so Nehemiah here is hearing this. He's heard, whether it's directly or he's heard through on the grapevine, what Sambalat and Tobiah and others are saying. And then he tells us and he writes how he responded. And the way that he responds is simply by praying. And he lets us in on what it was that he prayed. Verse 4, it says, Hear, O God, for we are despised. Turn back their taunt on their own heads and give them up to be plundered in a land where they are captives. Do not cover their guilt and let not their sin be blotted out from your sight, for they have provoked you to anger in the presence of the builders. And so Nehemiah prays fighting words. And yet notice it's a prayer. They're not, they're not fighting words sent back to Sambalat and God's enemies. They're fighting words sent up to the one who fights for him, to God, that he would turn their, prayer, their taunts back on themselves. And then the work continues. And so he says very frankly in verse 6, So we built the wall, and all the wall was joined together to half its height, for the people had a mind to work. And so the work keeps going, and naturally Sambalat and Tobiah are not happy, and that means they've got to turn it up a notch. The tensions escalate. And so we read about this in, in verse 7. But when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabs and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem was going forward and that the breaches were beginning to be closed, they were very angry. 
And they all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to cause confusion in it. And we prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. And so tensions are rising. And the way that this is described, that Nehemiah writes it down for us, uh, brings up for us perhaps a, a theological tension that is actually helpful for us to clarify and understand as we think about how, hey, we're meant to be working for God in the world, and yet there's going to be opposition. What are we to do? And so let's talk about the reality of responsibility. The uh, enemies of Nehemiah now are on every single side of Jerusalem. You have the, the Arabs down south, you have the army of Samaria up north, the Ammonites in the east, and Ashdod was believed to be in the west. And so Jerusalem is surrounded. And so you would think, for all intents and purposes, this is over. The, the work is not going to be able to be complete because these guys are angry and they're everywhere and they're powerful and they're coming against us from every single side. It is over. Nehemiah is cooked. We should go home. And some of them do indeed think that. Some of their friends from Judah get a sense of this desperation. They start calling into Jerusalem saying, hey, come home. It's too dangerous. Save yourselves. Come, stop the work. You will be killed, they say. But notice the resolve of Nehemiah here. Verse 9, he said, We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. Later, down in verse 14, it says, And I looked and arose and said to the nobles and to the officials and to the rest of the people, Do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, who is great and awesome, and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. You know, you can't help, as you read that, but picture, you know, Nehemiah have half of his face painted blue. As he's like the prototypical William Wallace here from the movie Braveheart. But herein lies this powerful truth that is important for us as Christians. How should we think about fulfilling God's mission when powerful spiritual forces are coming against us? Notice that Nehemiah sees the danger and he knows he doesn't have the power to beat off the threat by himself, so he prays to God and he calls his people to remember the Lord. And at the same time as remembering the Lord, at the same time as praying to God, Nehemiah knows the responsibility he has to defend the wall and the city and his people. And so while praying, he sets a guard. While remembering, he also charges them all, get ready to fight. And so there's this powerful word in both of these verses. It's a very little word, and. And is a very powerful word here because we need the power of that and when thinking about spiritual opposition against us. You see, as Christians, we can sometimes subtly drift into uh, two ends of a spectrum. Sometimes when we're thinking about doing the Lord's work, we can either stay idle or at the other end, we can fall into idolatry. Sometimes we hold God's sovereignty, God's power, God's might, God's responsibility for fulfilling His promises of building His church, of bringing about the, the vision that we see in the book of Revelation. That, hey, we're, we're going to get there. We can be assured that God is going to do it. And we can be about God's sovereignty and His power, so kind of see that so high and so exclusively that we fall into an idleness about ministry and mission that God has actually invited us into, that God has called us into. And so yes, we might fulfill our classic spiritual duties of kind of coming along to church and maybe having the odd 
quiet time, maybe some prayer in small groups, but we perhaps never take it upon ourselves to start thinking big about the time that God's given us, the life that God's given us, the energy that God has given us. So perhaps God might use us powerfully in ways that if we give, him, give ourselves to Him, make ourselves available to Him, He might use us in fulfilling those promises in His sovereignty. Now God is great and awesome, as we just read. He is powerful and mighty. He is enough. But God's sovereignty shouldn't stifle so much as stir human activity. The fact that God is sovereign is the reason we pray. The fact that God is sovereign is the reason we get to work. The fact that God is sovereign is the reason we give of our time, give of our lives, because we know that God is sovereign enough to use them in His promises. And then on the other end of the spectrum, some of us might be so fired up about what God has us here to do that our problem isn't staying idle and kind of checking out and just letting others do it or letting God do it under His sovereignty, but rather idolizing that we get to do it. And so we make an idol out of doing things for God. We start to get our, uh, tap our, our identity and our, our value and our worth from how we get to do things, particularly in front of other people for God. And slowly we might be so desperately fighting for Jesus and yet we stop depending upon Him. Ministry burnout is real. Uh, it feels like particularly these days, uh, you know, every, every webinar for pastors is all about how to, how to stay in the race, how to persevere, and it's real for pastors, it's real for, for anyone who's serving, who's trying to continue to push on and press on in serving God, whether paid, whether volunteer, whether church, whether parachurch. But we don't need that because it's so tempting for us to be driven by our pride, to be driven by our insecurity, to think that God needs us to fulfill His promises in Scripture. But we see this great and here that Nehemiah had this holy hustle about himself. Hey, the work needs to be done. Let's get to work. And yet he had a holy humility about himself that he knows he needs God to do the work of God. And so maybe you're here today and you think, hey, you know, God doesn't need me. Look, there's like 200 people in the room today you know, I can kind of just step, step back into the background of, of, of the, the life of this church and be about my own thing. Maybe you want to step out of that or, or think about that. And, and it is true that God doesn't need you, but He's actually asked you. He's invited you. He's commanded you. He's, he's called you to be involved in being a witness for Him in the world. He wants you to get involved, to, to do the work, to be about it, to be praying for people in your life, in your spheres of influence, to have conversations with you, to see how you go about life, that you might be able to point them to Him. Or maybe you're thinking, you're here, you're here and you're thinking, and you're probably not thinking it in these words, hey, God needs me. That it's on me to work for Him, or else no one else is, it's not going to happen. We're not going to be able to build the church. We're not going to be able to accomplish it. We're not going to be able to see people come to know Jesus, but hey, that's not true. God, in His grace and in His kindness, He takes empty vessels like you and me. I mean, He even used donkeys to talk in the Scriptures. He invites us to be one of those donkeys that talks the good news of Jesus out into the world for His purposes. 
And so we need to have this same and in our lives. Now, there are too many people in your life, too many people in this city who have never heard about the good news of Jesus, who has come, God in the flesh, stepped into the world so that we might be rescued from our sin, rescued from our disobedience and our rejection of God, and we might be adopted and welcomed and invited into the family of God and then reconciled with Him and spend eternity with Him in heaven. There are too many people who haven't heard that message, too many people who haven't yet taken that step in repenting and believing in Jesus. So let's get to work. Let's get to work thinking about our colleagues, thinking about our families, thinking about our sports teams, thinking about our networks, our neighborhoods. Let's get to work thinking about how these people can meet Jesus. You know, in the church world, we often kind of rate church size. And, you know, the average church in Australia, I believe, is, is somewhere between 60 and 70 people. And so when you get a church like ours, our church is now about 400 people. You start thinking, hey, that's a, that's a big church. It's a, a medium-sized church. And yet we, the, the, the thinking is completely off. There are 5 million people in Melbourne. There are about 4.9 million people today who are not going to be in a worshipping community hearing about Jesus. We are a, a, a tiny little speck of work that God is doing here in Melbourne. And there is a harvest that is plentiful. Jesus tells us that and he tells us to pray, therefore, that laborers might be raised up to be sent into that harvest. There is too much fruit to be picked and we need more people, more hands on deck. And so like Nehemiah, let's get to work. And at the same time as we pick that fruit, at the same time as we get to the work, we need to remember that Jesus says that he is the vine, that apart from him, we can do nothing. And so the work here in Nehemiah carries on but the people have this, this new mentality. They have what Nehemiah has led them toward, a wartime mentality. And so let's land the plane by talking about this wartime mentality because he orders his people to get ready for the attack, get ready for these armies to come. And he gets them ready by giving them a specific role. It's as if it, it reads as if he's kind of giving everybody a major, that some people will have to major in construction and while they're building the wall, they keep a weapon in one hand. Other people have to wait, uh, major in the defense, and while guarding the wall, they also use their other hand to put bricks on the wall. And it's summarized at the end of our chapter, verse 21 to 23. It says, So we labored at the work, and half of them held the spears from the break of dawn until the stars came out. I also said to the people at that time, Let every man and his servant pass the night within Jerusalem, that they may be a guard for us by night, and may, may, may labor by day. So neither I nor my brothers nor my servants nor the men on the guard who followed me, none of us took off our clothes, each kept his weapon at his right hand. And so we don't actually get to the point where uh, we hear about the enemies making an attack, but we get to the point where God's people are ready for it. They are standing ready should it come. But the work continues as the people prepare themselves for war. And it's a striking image to think about these people surrounding Jerusalem, working and getting ready for war. And it's a striking image that might just help us as we consider our own walk with Jesus. 
You know, this year I'm, I'm a part of a, uh, an emerging leadership cohort with Alpha Australia. Alpha, they, they run the course, uh, but they also try to invest in uh, the church across Australia. Uh, so I'm part of this kind of cohort with uh, leaders from different denominations and networks and, and movements and churches around Australia. Uh, and this week, they, they put us up in Tweed Heads for a leadership conference. So that's kind of why I signed up. I'm like, hey, okay, okay, you're going to do that? I'm all in. Uh, now, on the return leg on, on Friday, uh, I was able to snag on the, on the flight back seat 1A. First time, seat 1A. I was excited knowing I was going to be sitting in seat 1A. And so as I'm there in the line, uh, getting ready to scan my boarding pass on my phone, I notice that everybody else's boarding pass is like, goes green and like, thank you very much on your way through. And then I scan my boarding pass and it goes red. This big red X. And the, the, the sound effects for it too, like, dun dun. Am I not in seat 1A? What's happened? Well, actually, it's because they want to, because you're in an emergency exit row, like G you up for the experience. Like, like just have a little bit of an interview. To, to decide, are you fit for seat 1A? And so they asked me, you know, Mr. Coombs, you're in an emergency exit row. Are you prepared in the event of an emergency to help? I said, I'm ready. <laughs> and so I continued walking on into the plane, into seat 1A. Now, seat 1A is, is not for the faint of heart. This is, this is not for those who are just along for the ride. Seat 1A is for those of us who are willing to put our lives on the line and to save the people, should anything go wrong, who would naturally be in great distress. And so they asked me if I was ready. I said I was ready. And then buoyed by this, this new responsibility, I'm kind of hopping, skipping on to the front of the plane. And on that plane, there were some 200 people, some 200 souls who were in my hands there <laughs> in the emergency exit seat. And so I settled into seat 1A and took my place and my position and 30 minutes later, I fell asleep. <laughs> the legroom was too much for me. And so there I was, conscripted to serve in saving the plane's life, saving people's lives. And I don't know if anyone noticed, but the guy who was meant to save everyone's life was asleep. I had nodded off. The plane was in trouble. Now, thankfully, no emergencies occurred. We landed safely. We did land 90 minutes late, but that was Jetstar. Uh, now, so often in my own Christian life, not just, not just when I'm on the plane, in my own Christian life, I, I am tasked with staying alert, tasked with an eternal mission, tasked with being about the salvation of others, getting to work. And so often, just like on Friday, I fall asleep to that responsibility that I have been invited into by God himself in his kingdom. And so Nehemiah, for charges us, challenges us to stay alert, to stay on guard, to stay ready. Ed Welch, an author and biblical counsellor, he kind of uses this imagery as he's thinking about us fighting our sin and our flesh that can so often lead us, our desires can lead us away from what God has for us. He says, the only possible attitude toward out-of-control desire is a declaration of all-out war. There is something about war that sharpens the senses. You hear a twig snap or the rustling of leaves and you're in attack mode. Someone coughs and you're ready to pull the trigger. Even after days of little or no sleep, war keeps us vigilant. So while we live in these days, these days where we know Jesus has won, 
We are just a part of a victory parade. That is our life today. We are part of a victory parade to let everybody know that Jesus has won. And yet, as the evil one prowls around that parade like a roaring lion, we need to stay vigilant. Stay on guard. Lest the evil one attack us. Lest the evil one bring us down. Lest the evil one distract us away from God's mission. So God's people are at war. And yet we're not at war against other people. We're at war against our own flesh. At war against the ways we can be lulled into compromise, into apathy. And so perhaps the attacks we face aren't going to be physical as they were with Nehemiah. But rather, maybe for you and me, it's, it's discouragement. Maybe it's a, a sense of, of disconnection from the body. Maybe it's a feeling of condemnation. Maybe it's emotional restlessness. Maybe it's a, a temptation to compromise or to give up or to step back into that idleness or to press into idolatry. Maybe it's cynicism or a critical spirit or the temptation to sow disunity. The spiritual enemies we face are real and they are present. And yet at the same time, those soldiers in the battle, we should know that the war has already been won. This is what the New Testament is about. The war has already been won. Jesus has come and Jesus has secured God's city. And Jesus promises to even now be building us a city. There's a section in the New Testament where Paul uses this kind of wartime mentality, this wartime imagery to help us apply what we're reading here in Nehemiah 4. He tells the church in Ephesus to armor up and to be ready for war. Let me quote it to you. It's a a long quote. It says in Ephesians 6, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. And so Paul is telling us the things that we have seen here in Nehemiah. There is a battle for truth, and so you need to wear the belt of truth. Armor yourself with God's truth. There is a tendency to be idle, and we need to stay alert, praying at all times. But notice in Paul's admonition here, in his challenge here, he tells us to be strong in the strength of God's might. He's not telling us to kind of get it together, guys. Work harder. Be more disciplined. No, he's telling us to stand in the goodness of what God has done for us in Jesus. And so we're called to put on armor, but it's not our own armor. We're called to put on the armor of Christ. Because when the enemy attacks you, a breastplate of your own righteousness won't save you. Because you've failed. Lord, all of us have failed to live up to our own standards, let alone God's standard. All of us are unrighteous in and of ourselves. And no, we put on the breastplate of Christ's righteousness. 
that reminds us that in Him, we're pure. In Him, we're made perfect. In Him, we are cleansed. When the enemy accuses you, you don't need a sword of your own kind of positivity to wield. No, you need the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And so what we're called to do is, is ready, for, ready ourselves for spiritual opposition by simply looking to Jesus. By so filling our lives, our minds, our mentalities, our attitudes with who Jesus is for us. That we might armor ourselves by remembering what Christ has done for us. Putting on the shoes of the gospel of peace. God, we thank you that you're a God who, though we're at enmity with you, has brought peace. We're to put on all that God in Christ has done for us, relying on his perfect life, his sacrificial death, his victorious resurrection for us. And that we might know those things so well that it's as if we're clothed in the realities of who Jesus is for us. And so Nehemiah points us again to Jesus. Enemies have always come against the work of God and they will continue to come until they are ultimately destroyed. And yet, at every single step, God's plan has never taken a backward step. His promises are true. We are on our way to see them in person where faith becomes sight. And for now, we delight and bask and clothe ourselves in the reality of what Jesus has done for us. And so let us armor up and let's get to work. Let us look to Jesus and let's serve him with our lives. Let us take up the sword of the Spirit and be ready to fill our minds with truth and let us build the city and trust in the one who is building a city for us. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you for your work in the world. We thank you for two and a half thousand years ago, your work over there in the Middle East where you led your people to defend God's city, to be ready, even in the midst of, of opposition, that your promises were so real to them that they got about the work. And Lord, we pray now for our own day and our own time. We thank you for Jesus, for his life, death, and resurrection. We thank you that you have secured all that Nehemiah hoped to do in sending your son. And Lord, as we live in this time where an enemy continues to prowl, and yet your promises stand firm and true, that we would cling to you, that we would look to you, that we would fill our minds with your word and so clothe ourselves in what you've done for us. Lord, help us be a people who walk with great confidence, a holy hustle into what you could do through us in this city and in our spheres of influence. And may we walk into those places with a holy humility, knowing that it is you who can do great things through us as empty vessels. So bless us, help us cling to Jesus, we pray in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.